So as I was thinking about the church in Thessalonica, I was just overjoyed to think about uh, Paul and his companions went there and they preached the gospel and how um, receptive the believers or the people in Thessalonica were. They were worshipers of idols. And uh, one verse says that um, they turned to God from idols to serve a true, a living and true God. I, I said this is absolutely amazing about God's ability or his capacity to save people from idolatry, paganism, uh, sin, and so many different forms and ways where they were never, th not even thinking about that at first. Sometimes you wonder what people are thinking um, in places where they are not familiar with the true God. And all of a sudden, somebody comes in there with the gospel and began, began to preach the gospel. And so they were ready recipients of the gospel, and we also see how they were not only recipients to the gospel in terms of salvation, but they were recipients to the gospel in terms of their lives and how they lived. Because uh, that church was known as a model church. In fact, the theme of the book is growth of a new church, a model church. And how they were examples to the church, they were an example to the churches in Macedonia, which at that particular time there was Philippi, the church at Philippi, and now the church at Thessalonica, and later on in Berea. And so they were a model church and examples to those churches. And so that's absolutely amazing. But at the same time, as we've been studying further into this letter, they were still lacking. There were still some things that they were lacking in because the missionaries had to be um, sent away and they weren't able to teach them all that they needed to know that was necessary or sufficient for them to be able to deal with all of the circumstances and issues that they would face. You know, think about how blessed we are. We have the whole Bible. We have the whole Bible, and they perhaps, uh, maybe in the synagogue they had a, a, a copy of uh, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, perhaps, they had that, but they didn't have anything like this. Uh, in fact, 1 Thessalonians was one of the first letters that Paul probably wrote um, on his missionary journeys. And so they had that when they got it, and then 2 Thessalonians and so forth, but they didn't have the whole Bible. So we can see in this particular passage that we're coming to now, we can see that they had a lack. And so Paul was concerned about that when he received information back from Timothy, he was concerned about their lack of uh, having the information that they needed to address a particular issue that was uppermost on their minds. And that particular issue was, what happens to the dead, especially as it relates to the coming of Christ? Where, how would they fit into that? What would happen to them? Will they miss out on anything? Will they be second-class citizens and so forth? So that's what we come to in chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. And this passage is a very known passage, and in many circles it's called the rapture passage, and that it, it is that, but at the same time, it seems like the main purpose for Paul writing this, which it actually included the rapture and the resurrection of the church, or the saints, uh, in the church age, but it also had to do with comfort comforting those who were grieving uh, inappropriately. They were grieving inappropriately. So Paul uh, begins in uh, verse 13. He says, but I do not, but we, he says, do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. Paul is still using that word brethren, which he's used uh, many times up to this point, and I think he uses it perhaps uh, maybe 21 times in First and Second Thessalonians combined. And so sometimes when I'm reading, <laughs> I will read a, a, a few words, and I would expect to hit, see the word brethren. <laughs> you know, he uses it so often. He said, but I will not have you to be uninformed, brethren, or I will not have you to be actually ignorant, brethren. Um, ignorant may not always sound like a kind word, but we're all ignorant because we're not uh, omniscient. <laughs> we don't know everything. We don't know it all. 
So we, all, we are all ignorant in some areas, and I'm ignorant in many areas and aspects of knowledge. So anyway, I can speak on my own behalf in that regard. But he did not want them to be uninformed regarding an issue that was at stake here because this issue was causing grief and mourning and weeping perhaps, but grief. Uh, they were grieving over the loss of loved ones. Now they, they believed in the Lord returning and I, because every chapter has that in there. And I believe that they believed that they were expecting the Lord to return perhaps even in their lifetime. And so Paul was no longer there. He was in Corinth at this time. And they were getting concerned because people were dying. Part of their number were dying. They call it asleep here. But they were actually dying. And so they were concerned about them. And Paul was also concerned about them when he, uh, especially when he received message back from Timothy, even though he rejoiced over the good news of, of their welfare. But at the same time, they were grieving over the loss of loved ones. So he says in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those or concerning those who are asleep. And uh, so that, here's why, you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So he didn't want them to be unaware of the state of the believers, even the when, they, when Christ returns in terms of what would happen to them. And so he be, he's beginning to, he's going to address that concern that they have. Because Paul loved these believers. He loved them. You can tell the way he writes to them that he was really, he really loved them and he was really concerned about them. So it's not his desire that they have a lack of knowledge in areas of life that's very important. Because people die uh, all the time. And so they were getting some pe they were having some people dying, and so that was a concern of theirs as now a concern of Paul's once he heard the news about that. And so he wanted to do something about it. So it says, so that you will not grieve as those who have no hope. Now, if we look at this second part here, so that you will not grieve as, as the rest who have no hope. Really, there's a little particle in this phrase which implies that they were already grieving and Paul did not want them to continue to grieve. This word not here really implies that Paul wanted them to stop a, uh, a, an action that was already in process, already in progress, that was already going on. So in order for them not to do that, he knew that they needed the truth concerning that, concerning the state of those who had died and what would happen to them when Christ returned. So he wanted to address that, and we will find that he does address it. See, there were some things that they did not know. For example, they did not know that perhaps when, when a person dies, a believer dies, what happens to them? What actually happens to a believer when he dies? His soul goes to heaven instantly. See, they, they, didn't, they may not have known that because they didn't have, for example, 2 Thessalonians uh, what 5, 8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They may not have had that or they may not have known that. Or in Philippians, let's turn to Philippians chapter 1, where they may not have known how good death was. They may not have known that, but, but Paul did. Uh, even though he wrote Philippians quite a while after that, and we do, but they may not have known that. For example, in verse 21 of chapter 1, Paul says, For to me, to live Christ. Uh, we learned during the uh, Glorious Hope Conference that the word is is not really in the original. For to me, to live Christ and to die is gain. Now this was not, <laughs> obviously they didn't know this because they were grieving inappropriately over those who had died. So they didn't know this. They didn't know that it was a gain to die. Well, what's part of the gain? Well, first of all, you're free from sin when you die. There's no more sin. You don't have to deal with sin anymore. And the second thing is you're with Christ. What's better than that? In fact, Paul's going to say that a little bit later on. But 
But if I am to live on in the flesh, that is, in this physical body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, that is, to go on living or to die, having the desire to depart, that is, to die, and to be with Christ. See, Paul was not just going to die. His soul, his uh, spirit, was going to be with Christ, as uh, Brother Ron just said. It was going to be with Christ. And he goes on, which, and he says, um, which is far much better. To be with Christ is far much better. That is really amazing to think about. When, um, when you think about how good life is here now, you can worship God. You have the first fruits of the Spirit. For example, you are regenerated. You're justified. That is, you have a right standing before God and his law. You're reconciled to God. You're no longer at war with God. You're at peace with him now. And you're a child of God. You've been adopted by God. All of these things are so good. But Paul is saying here, it's even better to be with Christ. Which he says, not only better, but far better. So if the, if the Thessalonian believers knew that, they probably wouldn't have been grieving inappropriately concerning those who had fallen asleep or who were asleep. The word sleep here, asleep is a euphemism for, for death. When we look at the first verse, verse 13, the first part of it says, those who are asleep. That's a present tense verb, which means an ongoing state of sleep or an ongoing state of death. And then the next two times it mentions this, it says those who have fallen asleep, which is understandable because in order to be asleep, you have to do what? You have to fall asleep. <laughs> it's kind of interesting that he uses a present tense verb here, but those two verbs are, or aorist means past tense. So anyway, uh, they, fall, they fell asleep, and as a result of that, they were asleep, and they were continuing to sleep. But when we talk about sleep here, this is not referring to the soul or the spirit. just want to mention that. This is referring to the body. Our physical body is what dies. At death, your soul or your spirit, which are interchangeable when you read the Gospels, um, that aspect of you doesn't die. Because we're two-part beings, we have a material part, which is our bodies, and then we have an immaterial part, which is spirit slash soul. That's the way I say it, spirit slash soul. There are those who say we're three-part beings, but I go with the two-part, immaterial and material, or material and immaterial. So it's the material part that dies, our bodies that die. Yeah. It doesn't die either. And they will be resurrected also. And they will live eternally also. And uh, in fact, there's a verse in uh, uh, Matthew 25, I think, 41 or somewhere in there that speaks of that. Or 36 or somewhere in there. But it, it speaks of that as well. So anyway, uh, but the Thessalonian believers were concerned about their brethren who, had, who were asleep or who had fallen asleep. So anyway, there was a lack. There was a couple of verses that I want to look at in 1 Thessalonians before we get into verse 14. Because <clears throat> it is because of Paul having sent Timothy to uh, Thessalonica to check up on the brethren, to find out their, how they were doing. And Paul, uh, Timothy brought back a good report. But let's look at chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, <clears throat> notice what it says because Paul was not with them long enough to teach them everything they needed to know notice what he says in verse 17 of chapter 2 but we brethren having been taken away from you for a short while Paul was hoping and thinking that he might get back there sooner taken away for a short while in person not in spirit implying that even though they weren't physically visibly among them but their minds and their hearts were, also, were still with them, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. So anyway, they had been, in a sense, kicked out, 
because of persecution, and then they were being hindered from going back. Now, let's look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. And Paul was so concerned about them because he wasn't able to give them all the knowledge and information regarding the faith that they needed to address all the issues that they would face. So he couldn't take it anymore. He had to do something. Look at verse chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could, end, we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. He eventually went to Athens after he left there. And this is what he did. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you. Notice concerning. Con encourage you as to your faith. I was looking at this passage, and I noticed that your faith, your faith, your faith is in this chapter four times. So let's look at verse six now. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always, that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. Isn't that wonderful? For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through what? Your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? Now notice verse 10. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly, that we may see your face and do what? And may complete what is lacking in your faith. As um, diligent as the, these believers were in terms of, of uh, their conduct, their way of life, and so forth, there was something that was still lacking in their faith. And that's what Paul wanted to visit them in order to do, to provide that for them. And as we will see in beginning in verse 14, this is what actually begins to happen. You know, it's so amazing to think about God, that God knows what we need, and God is a provider of what we need. need. He provides our needs. So we can be thankful to him in those ways because of that, that he knows our needs and he provides our needs. He knew that the Thessalonian believers had a need especially in the area of eschatology, even though they, apparently Paul had taught them a lot of eschatology, but not a complete eschatology. And so as a result of that, they had a need in that area. So Paul is now going, God through Paul, or Christ through Paul, is going to provide that for them. So let's look at verse 14. <clears throat> and I label this one, assurance of the well-being of departed loved ones based on their relationship with Jesus Christ through the gospel. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now we mentioned in, 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 in a couple of these verses here, when a person, when a believer dies, he's absent, his, his spirit, his soul is absent from his body, but that aspect of him is present with the Lord. Obviously, they didn't know that. So the question is, to them would be, how uh, will God, or Christ, bring with him those who have fallen asleep? See, that may have been uh, some information that, was, that they weren't aware of. They are with him even in that state of death. They are with him because it's their physical bodies that died, not their soul or their spirit. That aspect of them is actually with Christ, even as they're grieving uh, for their departed loved ones. Let me just make, make a mention of, of something here, and I hadn't thought about this until I was studying this. There are two ways to grieve regarding uh, a love, the, the demise or uh, decease of a loved one. Number one, we can grieve for the departed believers or we can grieve because of the departed believers. Now you may ask the question, what's the difference? Is there a difference? Well, as I thought about this, this is what I came up with. 
grieving for departed believers implies that you're concerned about their future in terms of what will happen to them when Christ returns. You're grieving because of them, or you're grieving not because of them, you're grieving for them, their state or their condition, which you don't fully understand, or they didn't fully understand at this point, as to their state and their future state when Christ returns. You follow me on this? So they, they were concerned about that. That is, you are concerned that they might miss out on some of the eschatological blessings associated with Christ's returns. There are blessings when Christ returns. Now, that's grieving for the dead believer. Now, what about because of the departed believer? It's different. Listen, this is what I came up with on that. Grieving because of departed believers is that you will miss being with them. You're not grieving because of, of them in terms of their state or their condition or their future state or future condition when Christ returns. You're concerned about they're no longer here. Just like we're sitting here now, I'm enjoying being in here among you. I enjoy this. I look forward to this every, every Sunday. I look forward to seeing you. I look forward to being among you because you are like-minded. You, you think like I do. You believe the same God that I do. And so we have the same future together. So I look forward to coming here even now. And so you will miss them. For example, like we're missing Brother Rick right now. We're missing Brother Jesse, even though they're not departed in terms of, 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 of died, dead, but they're not here because of illness and so on. You will miss their fellowship. You will miss worship, worshiping with them. You miss all of that. Grieving, in this case, is only natural and appropriate. Now, Paul is not telling them not to grieve, but he's telling them to stop grieving inappropriately. That is, they were grieving for those who had died as it relates to their concern about their welfare and so on. So that, that's the two aspects of grieving that I <clears throat> was able to come up with. Paul wanted these believers to stop grieving for their departed loved ones, but it was okay to grieve because they had died and they are no longer here. So now the assurance of the well-being of departed loved ones based on their relationship with Jesus Christ through the gospel. At this point, Paul is beginning to encourage the believers who had deceased church members, and he's doing it through the gospel, or because of the gospel, or because of their relationship to the gospel. He says, for if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, what is that? That's the basic, irreducible, elements of what? The gospel of the gospel. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's turn over there quickly. What did Paul say? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses, early part of that chapter, what did Paul say? He says, verse 1, just chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, for I make known to you, what? Brethren. There it is again. Paul likes to use that. For I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. That's good, isn't it? When you receive the gospel, you stand in the gospel. And you, you hold out the hope of the gospel. By which, he says, also you are saved if you hold fast the word which, uh, pre which, uh, hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believe in vain. That is, you, you remain in the truth. Jesus said that if you, if you remain in my word, you remember John chapter 8, Jesus said to those who had professed some kind of form of believing in him, he said, if you abide in my word, then what? You are true disciples of mine. You're true followers of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Make you free. Okay, but, but anyway, he's talking about the basic elements of the gospel. He says, number three, verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I'm in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 right now. And he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the basic elements of the gospel. Christ died. He was buried, implying that he, that he was dead. And then he was raised on the third day. 
By the way, he says according to the scriptures for uh, the dying and the being raised because you can find in the scriptures, that means the Old Testament scriptures, where it talks about Christ dying and also him being raised. So what Paul is wanting them to know here is that as sure as the death of Christ and now the resurrection of Christ, if you believe that, well then it's just as sure of, you can be just as sure of that, I mean of what Christ is going to do as a result of that as you can of that. For example, let me read it again. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, or in the same way, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That is, those who have died in him. We will see this little uh, preposition in a few times in this passage. Uh, we hear the expression, in Christ. And in Christ means that we are in a spiritual union with Christ. It's a spiritual, eternal, inseparable, unbreakable union. There's nothing that can change that. If a person is a true believer, if a person is truly saved, that person is in Christ, united to Christ. Death cannot break that union. Sickness, illnesses, diseases, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So dying doesn't change the state of a believer's relationship with Christ. That's information that these believers didn't know at that time, but they needed to know. So it doesn't change that. It's just as strong as it was in their life. Exactly right, yeah, in Ephesians chapter 5. So now let's look at uh, Roman numeral 3. Divinely inspired, and I'm not sure if all of this is on yours because <laughs> what I do, I write an, I write an out outline and then I start thinking more. <laughs> and as I think more, I change it so mine may read a little differently. What I wrote here, Roman numeral 3, divinely inspired, authoritative revelation provided. I don't, you don't, might not have quite that, but that's, that's what I eventually came up with as I read this verse. This is from verse 15, especially, as the first part of it. As I read this verse more, I thought about how great this verse is. Notice what it says. For this we say to you. For this we say to you. How? By or by means of the word of the Lord. We see here what Paul is about to say, and then he says that. What he's about to say here that follows the word that didn't come from him. This is, not, this is not of his own imagining. This is not something that he dreamed up. This is not on his own authority. It's apostolic authority, but it's based on the authority that Christ himself gave him and these words that he's about to say to Paul, to say to write to them, came from Christ himself. They came from Christ himself. How encouraging is that? This should have been really encouraging to these believers, especially because of the relationship Paul had with them and the relationship that they had with Paul. They trusted Paul. Paul trusted them. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. These are the very words of Christ. That, and here's the content of those words, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. I want to stop there for a moment because he used the word that we, which no doubt implies that Paul was considering himself to be alive at the time of Christ's coming. At least he was alive at this point, obviously, because he was writing the letter. Who are alive and remain until, but he's talking about until the coming of Christ. And notice this. He's going to give a, um, a um, denial here. 
he's going to give a denial here. That denial is this. Those of us who are alive and remain until the coming of Christ will not proceed. In other words, we will not have any advantage over those who have died. They will be at no disadvantage to us in terms of what Christ is going to do when he comes as it relates to those who have died as well as those who are still alive. And Paul is writing this in the, in the strongest manner that's available to him in this language. He uses the word translated will not, he uses two negatives side by side, which in English negates what you uh, said or about to say, but in here it strengthens it. Uh, he says that we will by no means uh, never, ever have advantage over them. We will not by any means ever have any advantage over them at all, nor will they have or be at any disadvantage to us at all. We will not perceive them. So he's making a denial of the living having an advantage over the dead. When we're in Christ, we're in Christ. Whether we're alive or dead, we're in Christ. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Our resurrection is guaranteed. Our transformation is guaranteed. It will happen. We belong to the Lord. We belong to him. Uh, I think I wrote something down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It'll be just a short interval between, but it happens real quickly. <laughs> It'll be real quick. <laughs> so there's no advantage for being alive. And you know, for some reason, we have a tendency to think that way, right? We think that if I'm alive when Christ returns, uh, I'm at some advantage. I'm not. Why? Why? Why do you think so? We're all believers, that's true. What else do you think might uh, be the reason that I'm at no advantage by being alive? I, I want to be alive. <laughs> huh? I haven't been with him face to face yet. I haven't been with him. Yeah. An advantage over us. Yeah. And that's exactly right. I think another thing might be that um, um, I'm not doing anything. You know, I'm not doing anything. I cannot raise, let's say if I were dead, I cannot raise my body. I cannot give myself a glorified body. I cannot give myself an incorruptible body. I cannot give myself an immortal body. I am not doing anything. Everything is being done to me. I'm, in, I'm passive. Christ is the actor. The same is true with the living and the dead. Even if I'm alive, I can't do anything to change myself. I can't even do that now. <laughs> so, so there's no advantage to being alive because we all belong to, to Christ. And he's the one who's acting actually on us and causing the transformation or the change that will be taking place to take place. So anyway, Paul is, uh, God of Christ is providing this, this information, this revelation to Paul so that he could give it to the church at Thessalonica in order to comfort them regarding their concerns over those who had died and what the condition of them might be. And this is true for us as well. These words are certain. We can believe them. We can trust them. He says, uh, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not proceed or have any advantage over those who have fallen asleep. That's good to think about when we even think about our own loved ones, some of our family members. For example, my grandfather died in 1968. He's been dead for a while, 1968. I believe that he's with Christ right now. He's one of my, he, he's my hero. I think he's my major hero on earth. And I got to know him a little bit. And he tried his best to share the gospel with me. 
he was trying to share the gospel of grace with me, but at that time, I wasn't interested. But I am looking forward to seeing him. So uh, I will have no, if I'm alive when Christ returns, I will have no advantage over him, even though he's been dead for quite a few years. My mom is saying. So anyway, that would be, we will not perceive them who have fallen asleep. So now we, we're getting more into uh, the aspect of what we're going to talk about. Notice verses 16 through um, verse, verses 16 and 17. But I wanted to, I thought I'd written it down. I wanted to say something else, but I'll keep going. Notice what will happen. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel, if you notice in the NAS, NAS um, the word the is in italics, implying that there's no article there. They did put an article there, but there is no article in the original. With the, arch, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Notice what he says here. For, this relates back to the end of verse 15. Those who have fallen, those who are alive will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. Now that's a denial of the living believer having an advantage. And now Paul is beginning to, going to now explain that. So that's the, the word for here is kind of an explanatory term. He's going to explain this denial at the end of verse 15. And he says, the Lord himself. Wouldn't it have been enough to say the Lord? I mean, the second person of the Trinity, the one through whom all things were made. Jesus said that uh, John in chapter 1 of John the Gospel says that all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. But notice what he says here. For the Lord, what? Himself. This is a very strong, emphatic statement. And this, I think Paul wrote this this way to get our attention. Listen to this. Jesus is not going to send a delegate. He's not going to send an ambassador. He's not going to send an angel. He's not going to send Paul or any other, other of the apostles. He's not going to send anyone. He's going to come personally. Isn't that encouraging? Just think about the love that Jesus has for us. He is going to do this. He will descend. He will come down from heaven. And I think this from heaven here could tie back to chapter 1. Let's go back to chapter 1 and look at the last two verses. Christ is going to, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Descent, of course, means to come down. And he says here in verse 9 of chapter 1, For they themselves, those who uh, knew about them, report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you, Paul is talking about the Thessalonian believers now, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Now look at verse 10. And in addition to that, to wait for his son from heaven. You see that? To wait for his son from heaven. They had turned to God from idols, which means that they were generally saved, and they were serving a true God, but they were not only that, not only were they living in a progressively sanctified way, they were also waiting for God's son from heaven. And that's exactly where Paul said that he will descend from, from heaven. So they were living, looking for the return of Jesus Christ, whom he, that is God, raised from the dead, that is, that is Jesus, so it's, it's very explicit here, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So Jesus is going to come and rescue us. He himself is going to do it. From what? The coming wrath. There is a wrath coming. There is what you may call a <laughs> eschatological wrath that is 
the great tribulation and so forth, the tribulation and the great tribulation. But there's also a wrath in terms of eternal wrath. There's some division on which one this is talking about here, but it could be talking about the tribulation because we'll talk about the day of the Lord in chapter 5. So Christ is going to come and deliver us from that, that wrath that is coming. Isn't that wonderful? That is so wonderful. And that's what Paul wanted these believers who were grieving to know, that they were going to be delivered from that by the one who saved them in the first place. They'll be delivered from that. So he's coming himself. Um, think about the one who uh, who has saved us. He'd already come once to, to rescue us. He's coming again. I wrote some notes here that I can't find right now. <clears throat> but anyway, Christ is coming. Physically, visibly, bodily, we will see him. So he's coming to rescue us. He's deliver us from any form of judgment that is to come. What manner is he coming in? Notice uh, verse, uh, continuing on in, in the same verse. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The shout could be the command of, similar to the command of a general to his troops and so forth. He's coming with the voice of the archangel. Uh, Jude, Jude 9 refers to Michael as being an archangel. We don't know whether it's uh, Michael. It must be, uh, we don't know how many archangels there might be. It could be Michael, or there may be more than Michael as an archangel. The last one with the trumpet of God, usually used to summon a large gathering for presentation or for worship. This could be referring back to Isaiah chapter 27, verse 13. Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 27, verse 13, for just a brief moment and read that. Isaiah chapter 27, verse 13. It's used to summon. Notice what he says. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. Now, this may not be talking about what we're talking about here, but this is what a trumpet, how a trumpet was used. And those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So it seems like it refers to a summons uh, for presentation or for worship. And that's how he will come. This will not be a silent event. This will not be a silent event. But this is for those who are in Christ. This is for those who are in Christ. Yeah. That is so wonderful, isn't it? I mean... Uh, what is our burden? What is our main problem, main burden? Even as saved people, it's still sin. Our sin problem is a major problem. <laughs> that won't be anymore. Isn't that wonderful? That will not be anymore. We will be completely sinless. All the remaining vestiges of sin will be eradicated from us. We won't have to deal with that anymore. And this is how, this is the sequence of, sequence of events in verse 16b. And the dead in Christ will rise first. This is, uh, again, another affirmation of that denial that he made at the end of verse 15, that the, the dead will not have, be at any disadvantage to those who are still alive. They will rise first. They will receive their glorified bodies first before we receive ours. So they will be, in a sense, uh, have an upper hand on us, in that sense. 
But this, notice the, uh, and the dead in Christ. This is a limiting event. This is a limiting event. This is not for all the dead. There are probably billions of people dead right now. This is only for a select group, not based on us, but based on God and his choice. And the dead in Christ. This is a, this is, this refers to those who were engaged in a spiritual, in their physical lives, they were, they engaged, they were engaged in a spiritual union with Christ. And now they have died. These are the ones that he's referring to. These are the ones that he's referring to, and not only that, in the church age. This is for the church. Paul is writing to the church. Even the Old Testament believers are not part of this. You don't hear of Old Testament believers. You don't hear about concerning them in Christ. This is for the church and the church only. Those who are saved, those who are children of God through Christ. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3. Uh, this is what it, these are the ones who are being talked about here. Galatians chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 26. Galatians 3, 26. He says, for you are all sons of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing statement. Sons of God. For all of you, without exception, or without distinction even, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, this is not referring to water baptism, this is spiritual baptism, because when we are saved, we're baptized into Christ or into the church. Have clothed yourselves with Christ. He goes on in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man. Now, this is, talk, this is not talking about uh, actually the way we are. This is referring to our position before Christ, or before God. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the group that Paul is talking about or referring to here. Those who are in Christ. Notice at the end of verse 28. And all are, are all one in who? Christ Jesus. This is our spiritual union with Christ. Yes, sir. That's a good question. That's a good question. He doesn't participate in this right now. He does not participate in this. Yeah. Probably, this is, it's, that's a challenging question. Um, I'm glad you raised it. And I didn't really study that this time. But it's probably after Christ returns to the earth. I don't know exactly when. There's some discussion on that. Yeah. Good. But anyway, this particular event here does not include them. This includes the bride of Christ. This includes the bride of Christ, which is the church. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So that's the first part of the, this event. The dead in Christ will rise first. Now let's go to the second aspect of this event. This is Christ's descent and what will happen the second part of this is then verse 17 
implying a sequence. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is where the word rapture comes from. The word caught, the expression here, caught up. It could be snatched up. This word is used uh, about 14 times in the New Testament. It's not an uncommon word. Um, there are those who may deny the rapture, but it's a common word in the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 8, and I didn't write this verse down, but in Acts chapter 8, where Stephen, with the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, after he preached the gospel to him from Isaiah 53, and he was baptized. And then verse 39, notice what it says. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord, what? Snatched. You, you read the ESV, maybe. Is that the same word used there? Okay. He snatched. Yeah. What, do you, what is your word? Took him away. He seized him. Uh, he uh, got a hold of him and removed him from where he was to somewhere else. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. That's the same word that's used in our passage. The word is harpazo. Harpazo. He snatched him away. This word, Paul uses this word also in Second Thessalonians. I mean, Second. Uh, uh, second, Thess uh, second Corinthians, rather, chapter 12. Let's turn that. In fact, he uses it twice. Let's go to Second Corinthians um, 12. Beginning in verse 2. This is after Paul had these different revelations of the Lord and so on. He says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up. This is the same word. Or you could say snatched up to the third. Caught up, okay. Caught up, yeah. This is the same word as Paul used in uh, First Thessalonians. And he goes on, to, he caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was, verse 4, caught up into paradise. This is the same word. And you notice this in the passive, was caught up by somebody else. He didn't do it himself. He was, it was done to him. And that's the same as true with us or those who will be alive when Christ returns at the rapture uh, will be caught up. It's a passive form that uh, they will have nothing to do with it. They don't even know when it's going to be. Christ himself will do it. It is, yeah. Yeah, it's used there as well. Taken by force. And that's, that's part of the word, that's part of the, uh, the uh, definition of this word, to be taken by force like irresistible. It's not something that we can prevent from happening. God will do it. Christ will do it uh, on his own. He will snatch us up. But notice something that's not said here. What do you see? We know that the, the, those who have died will be resurrected. They will receive glorified, incorruptible, immortal bodies. What do you notice about what's not said right here regarding those who are still alive. Do you notice, you, there's something, I guess you can't notice what's not there, but <laughs> do, do you notice what's not said? There's nothing said about the translation or the changing of them. It says they'll be caught up, they'll be snatched up. Will we still be in the, in, in the way we are now or will we be changed? Yeah, so that, have, that takes us over to 1 Corinthians, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's go over there for a moment. I don't, it, there's not going to be two different kinds of saints. <laughs> so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
I think it's in verse 51 or somewhere in that area. He says in verse 51, he says, Behold, look, take notice, I tell you a mystery. This is a mystery because we hadn't heard of this before. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed. You see that? We will all, we will all be changed. Now those believers who are alive at the coming of Christ that will be snatched up will, all be will also be changed. Because it says, we'll all be changed. So we'll be glorified. We will be made immutable. That is, not immutable, um, incorruptible. There will no longer be any uh, decay of disease, death. We'll be immortal, glorified, just as those who were resurrected. We'll be imperishable. And as George said, this is how quickly it will happen. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, verse 52, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, perhaps the same trumpet we've been talking about, and the dead will be raised imperishable. You love that word? I do. I love this word. As I'm getting older, I'm getting weaker, you know, because I'm corruptible. Another word for this is corruptible. We are corrupt creatures. That's why we are living and decaying at the same time. Isn't that something? But the good news about believers, though, is that um, we're being renewed day by day. That's the good news. So anyway, uh, immortality will be immortal, no longer subject to death. That's something. We will no longer be subject to death. Not only will we not die anymore, we will no longer be subject to death. And uh, what a wonderful state. And I love that passage also in uh, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Let's turn over there for a moment. We're going to begin to wrap this up soon. <clears throat> so let's turn over to Philippians. This is one of my uh, favorite passages now. Verse 20. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven. Oh, I'm sorry, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse, beginning in verse 20. I'll give you a moment to turn there. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven. Isn't it wonderful to have a heavenly citizenship? From which also we eagerly wait. Are you eagerly waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? And notice what he will do. Who will transform the body of our humble state. Do I have anybody in here this morning who will disagree with me that our body is in a humble state right now? <laughs> he, will, he, will, he will transform it. This is a radical change of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Isn't that good? This is what Christ is going to do for us. How is he going to do it? He's going to do it by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Christ has mighty power to subject all things to himself. That'll be easy for him. Now, let's go on. This is what will happen to those who are alive. What will be the consequences of this? And what will be the outcome of this? Look at verse 17, the last part. Let's go back to uh, 1 Thessalonians now. Verse 17, the last part. Eternally with the Lord. Notice what it says. And so we will always be with the Lord. We will never be, we will never not be with him. Always be with the Lord. You know, in Dallas, Fort Worth, and perhaps in other major cities, there are what we call mega churches. Dallas probably has more than, than most places. There's a lot of mega churches in Dallas, Fort Worth. Huge churches. But when I was reading this, I started thinking. I said, this will be the first time that all the believers from Pentecost until this time 
every one of them from every country, every language, every tongue, every people, every nation will be together with Christ. This will be the largest assembly of Christ's church that has ever been. You know, 3,000 souls were saved when on the day of Pentecost. But that will be nothing compared to this. Not that that's, that's very important. They'll be there too. This will be the largest gathering of God's people ever. This is absolutely amazing. People will speak in different languages, different races, different cultures, different backgrounds from different places. All across, across the globe will be there together with Christ. That is something to think about. And we will be there too. We will be there with them. And notice how Paul says this. He's talked about those who have died in Christ, and then he's talked about those who are alive and remain when Christ descends or comes down. But notice here he says, and at the end of this verse, and so we. This includes all of the saints throughout the church age will be there. We shall always, notice it says shall, there's no question about it, there's no doubt about it, always, not for a short time, always. Now we're not going to remain in the air forever, we will probably be taken back to heaven with Christ. This may be where John 14 comes in, so let's turn over to John 14. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. This may be referring, this may be that. Notice what he says, Jesus is speaking in chapter 14. This is the night before his death. And he was telling his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He says, in my father's house, verse 2, are many dwelling places. So there'll be enough room. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Notice verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Now, many believe that he's speaking of this event that we're talking about. And do what? Receive you. Isn't that wonderful? Christ will receive us. Where? To myself. Because he himself will descend. He will receive us to himself that where he is or where I am, it says, there you may be also. This could be in reference to a Jewish wedding where the groom prepares everything that is necessary. Then he goes to the house of the bride, his bride, to get her and to bring her back with him to the place that he has prepared. We are the bride of Christ. Christ is the bridegroom. He will come for us one day and take us to be with him. And we will be with him forever. All of the events that succeed this throughout eternity, we will be with him. We will be a part of that. That's absolutely amazing. So, so what should we do with this? The good news about this passage is verse 18 tells us. Notice verse 18, our last verse. Therefore, in light of all of this, comfort one another with these words. These grieving believers needed to be comforted and they needed assurance of the truth to comfort them. And that's exactly what Paul had given them from the very lips of Christ himself. Notice he says, he's very specific. Comfort one another. How? With these words. With these words. And that's what we want to do. We can comfort those who are grieving with the words of Christ, if, they, if, they're, if they're the ones who are grieving over a lost loved one, maybe a family member, whoever it might be, if we know that they are a believer, we can comfort them with these words. And also, I think this should also affect how we live today. There's a couple of passages that I want to look at in terms of implication. And one is in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 3, I believe. He says, 
First John chapter 3, he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And notice what he says at the, at, in verse 3. And everyone who has this hope, which is what this is, fixed on him, does what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. And I like the one over in Titus as well. This is, this is concerning the coming of Christ. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through uh, 14. Notice what it says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. This is talking about progressive sanctification here. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. He who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is, in light of all that we have talked about this morning, this is how we want to be living. We want to be living righteous, holy, godly lives, looking forward to the return of Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, the bodies of our lowest state, into conformity with the body of his glory, by which he will, by the power with which he will subdue all things to himself. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word, how encouraging and how comforting it is. Father, thank you that you gave Paul to give to these grieving Thessalonian believers the truth of what will happen in the future regarding the return of Christ and those loved ones that they were grieving about who had died they can now they, they hopefully were encouraged by these words and Father may we be encouraged by them by the truth of your word and may we teach it to ourselves and preach it to ourselves daily that Jesus Christ will return. He will return in glory for us and receive us unto himself. We pray in his name.